Chapter 4 Spoils of War The city-states of the dark were autonomous, independent entities, each one vying for power against the others. There were 12 major city-states and a host of minor ones throughout the period of the dark. All of them maintained their own armies, often at great expense. Early historians state that this was to fight the goblins, but in actuality, most of their battles were against other city-states. The church, more concerned with spiritual matters and willing to see the individual city-states spend their time battling each other to their own detriment, turned a blind eye to the continual infighting until it was too late. Arkel, Argivian Scholar A month later, Joda staggered, alone, throughout the wreckage of a forgotten and abandoned city. Occasionally, he would pause and cock an ear to the wind, listen for pursuit, then would press on again, limping through the weed-choked streets of the city. His armor and weapons were gone, as was all of his company. The city was on no map that Ged had, and Joda wondered briefly what its name had been. Perhaps it dated back to the time of the Brothers' War. Perhaps it was some rival of Al-Sur or Ged that was defeated in combat or had made its trade routes choked off or was just abandoned to the cold. Joda shook his head. Most of the buildings were still standing, which was unlikely in the case of a war. Much of the furnishings were still in the houses, though they had brought it to uselessness. Something had swept through here, some magical, or disease, or a combination of the two, and removed every living thing. Not every living thing. There was a flurry of beating wings above him. Joda ducked instinctively, and a flock of pigeons banked overhead, disappearing behind the roof of one of the taller buildings. There were no people, or dogs, or horses, but there were birds. At least he wouldn't have to worry about starving, provided he could catch them. Provided that he avoided the goblins, of course. If not for them, Gid would have taken all sewer itself, and he could have found Vasca. The war did not start out as a war, at least not to the participants. With the lifting of the plague warning in Ged, a week after Joda joined up, and with a large number of men under arms, the city-state's aristocrats had determined that the army should provide a show of force to the north. Of course, Togoth would note, privately over the fire. This also gets a large number of men forging over the land, as opposed to suckling at the city granaries. Togoth was 20 years older than most of the other men in the unit, and as such, had been made corporal. He was also an affirmed cynic, becoming more cynical with every mile they put between themselves and Ged. Togoth also pointed out that most of their maneuvers were through lands where the farmers were unsure about whether to sell their upcoming harvest to Ged or Al-Sur. A large military force in said farmers' backyards might tip the balance one way or the other. Joda nodded, but said nothing, noting that Togoth's insightful comments on Ged intentions and tactics were never voiced when they were around the upper ranks. For the first week or so, there was a lot of marching, interrupted only by relatively good eating provided by the local farmers who hoped that the army would eat and move on. The army was relatively good to Joda. His unit was made up of general outsiders, natives of the southern coast, and refugees from Giva province and other northern regions. It was sprinkled with a few recruits, filled with excitement and empty knowledge, and leavened with what professional soldiers could be dragooned into serving as officers. The food was good. Fresh breads, and meat-laden stews made with supplies donated by loyal farmers, fish from the rivers, and game from the forest. Joda himself brought down a deer, still in its winter coat, a rarity this late in the year, and they made jerky off the venison left over. Discipline was present, but minimal, as long as they put on a good show in the black liqueur armor and green capes at frequent parade marches. They drilled and marched and drilled some more, then ate.
and, best from Joda's viewpoint, with the total lack of priests in the army. While the church was apparently concerned about the morale and morals of the men within the city-state, that concern ended as soon as they started marching around and sleeping under the cold, starless skies. It would seem likely they were playing favorites, said Togoth, if they went out with one army and not another. Why not go out with all the armies? asked one of the young Hotspurs. Because then, Togoth said with a deep frown, they might get blood on their nice clean robes when we start fighting. And it is a win, not an if. It's only a matter of time. Nobody builds an army without intending to use it. Joda slowed his painful walk, limping from one side of the street to the other. His wounded leg was on fire now, and he tried to put as little weight on it as possible. If he could find some mare's milk, an egg, and some mineral oil, he might be able to whip up something that could aid him, he thought, or at least take his mind off the pain. Many of the roofs of the buildings were sagging from rot, and in several places had caved in entirely, but there were enough still standing to see that it had been a serviceable city, save that its inhabitants just left one morning never to tell anyone of its existence. There was something else out about the city that Joda could not put his finger on immediately. Then it came to him. The city had no walls. He had seen small communities, like his old family manor, which did not have any walls, but something this large, surviving without protective stone between it and the outside, was beyond his comprehension. Or not so strange. There was nothing in the city now, so the lack of walls might have been the reason they abandoned it. A weird feeling crawled up Joda's spine. He had become separated from the other survivors in the fog and soon afterward found the first buildings of the city. The buildings loomed in the mist like great gray shadows, resolving themselves only as Joda drew near. First one, then another, then a third, and then several aligning themselves in the fashion of a street. Then patches of paving stones appeared among the grass and hard-worn dirt. Side streets appeared and arched away on both sides. Joda realized that the city was laid out like a circle with the wide main streets leading to something at its center. Joda stayed at one side of the street now, taking comfort in the solidarity of the buildings and limped toward the city's heart. Indeed, Togoth was right, for while the Ged army was drilling, a similar force in Al-Sur was being readied. The presence of a major Ged force was a threat to Al-Sur, even though its walls were 10 feet thick and it boasted mighty gates that, some said, dated back to the time of the brothers. The idea that some of the farm communities along the river might send their harvest south rather than north to Al-Sur, was intolerable, so the Al-Surians marshaled their own force, siphoned with a healthy dose of elven mercenaries from the shattered islands. Having collected the group, resplendent in their purple and white, the rulers of Al-Sur sent their army on maneuvers as well. It was only a matter of time before the two forces collided. The spark that lit the flames of war was set over a few barrels of wine. Joda heard the tale later from Fenda, a former rope maker from the south, who was a fertile source of the military grapevine. A unit of Ged cavalry was scouting and scavenging and came upon a winery. The workers were busy loading several casks of the recent vintage into a wagon. The lieutenant asked where they were shipping the cask. The ventier explained that there was an encampment of Alsurians nearby and that he was sending the wine with his compliments to their commanding officer. The cavalry lieutenant explained that the wine would be better served on the tables of the Ged forces. The ventier, faced with a dozen armed men on horseback, quickly agreed and offered to deliver an equal amount to the Ged command with his compliments. It would have been a simple matter of military procurement had not a unit of Alsurian horsemen ridden up, resplendent on their white horses. This unit was to provide an escort for the Ventir's wares, their commander explained loudly, since it was known that there were Ged robbers in the area. Harsh words were exchanged, 
and then blows. Swords were drawn, and blood and wine spilled on the Bintir's doorstep. The end result was that the Alsurian horsemen were put to full retreat, while the Ged forces regrouped back at their base, spreading word of the Alsurian invasion of the Ged loyal farms. Within the day, Joda, Togoth, Fendal, and the rest of the unit were marching northward, seeking to block off an Alsurian retreat at the Great Bridge, where the main route between the two cities crossed the Alamar River. They were going slow and unpleasant. The weather turned, and the skies unleashed a merciless pounding rain, cold and so hard that it would strike the ground and rebound, splashing those marching through it from below as well as above. The units quickly were strung out as they were pressed forward, and some disappeared, never to be heard from again. Fendoff said he understood that those units had been caught by Alsurian outriders or nether spawn creatures, summoned by foul wizards who had supposedly allied with Alsur. Joda bit back his tongue at the rumor. First, his time in Alsur showed them to have no more interest in magic than Ged. And second, the idea that magic was primarily used to summon evil and destructive creatures rubs him raw. This is the type of ignorance that the church encouraged and fed on, that allowed the Inquisition to proceed without impediment. Still, it was not to Joda's advantage to admit that he had been in Alsur recently, nor to confess to his sympathy to magicians. And as such, he remained silent. Togoth took up the challenge of Fendal's rumors, however, and pointed that during every war rumors had circulated about the opposite side, consorted with demons, from Eldritch followers of Urza and Mishra, to the monstrous eaters of the dead that scavenged the battlefields, looking for the wounded and crippled to feast upon. Ever pragmatic, Togoth believed that the missing units had gone rogue and would eventually turn up as mercenaries in the employ of some petty noble or another within a fortnight. Joda concentrated merely on placing one foot in front of the other. He considered fading into the driving rain like the lost units, but decided against it. His ultimate goal was Alsur, and they were already headed that way. Besides, Fendal might be right about the Alsurian outriders. In the end, they lost the race. Enough of the fleeting Alsurian units reached the bridge in order to secure it, and they brought up fresh reinforcements from the side of the river. The Ged units ahead of Joda's forces did catch their foes by surprise, but the Alsurians, after a brief battle, conducted an order retreat across the huge stone bridge and dug in. By the time Joda's units arrived, a grave pit had been dug, and the fallen from the first battle had already been burned, and armed pickets had been constructed on both sides of the bridge. Joda's unit rested for the night, footsore, exhausted, and disappointed. Fendal spent the early part of the evening away from their biobock, and when he returned, he was spitting nails. The rumor mill said the command knew about a ford several days' travel up the Almar. With the morning sun, they would be ordered to march there and hold it against the Alsur forces. Fendal was wrong. It was two hours before sunrise that the order came down, and they were rousted from their blankets and told to prepare for the march. When the sky finally lightened enough to be considered sunrise, they were already five miles up the river. The rain, which had slackened to a mere drizzle through the night, now greeted them anew with a cold torrent that hid everything beyond a few feet from view. Joda kept his head down and concentrated on putting one foot in front of the other. As he neared the center of the city, Joda heard the splashing of water, like a series of waterfalls. The fog was clearing now, and he could see both sides of the street. Above the sky was a white dome. The roads converged at the city's heart in a great circle, a circus of hard, plate-sized paving stones. Grass had sprouted in the cracks between the stones, and numerous pigeons were strutting around, picking at the seas and blades of grass. But the heart of the city was dominated by a fountain. It was twice as tall as Joda, with a widened base and a lip that extended back two feet over the fountain's inner edge. Rising from the center of the fountain was a pedestal, 
and mounted atop the pedestal were four lion heads, one for each of the cardinal directions. Each of the lion heads issued a healthy spout of water that sprayed out, almost reaching the overhanging edge of the basin's rim. Joda approached the fountain, and the pigeons took note of him. They exploded in a burst of wings, only to swoop down again on the far side of the circus and resume their seed-picking activities. Joda looked over the wide rim. The water looked mountain-fresh, spewing from the lion's mouth, but the basin was filled with a thick growth of algae. The bottom of the basin had filled with muck, and greasy-looking plants jutted from the water, spreading wide, foul-smelling leaves. The foaming waters of the mountain collected near these stalks in strings of bubbles, and several dark shapes that Joda chose not to identify floated in the water. Joda looked around. There was a motion to his right. He started, and turned, and there was a figure at the edge of the circus, just where the fog began to thicken again. At first, he thought it was another soldier, either from Ged or al Sur. The figure was dressed in dark robes and a hunched profile, its shoulders even with its ears. Joda slowly turned fully toward the figure, fearful that his vision would evaporate if he moved too quickly. It had to be his dark guardian angel, the Ragged Man. Once was coincidence, twice was fate, Fosca had once said. Thrice was a lead pipe cinch. Joda took a step toward the Ragged Man, and it glided smoothly to one side into one of the buildings as if it was a ghost. Joda shouted and started limping toward the building a hundred feet away. That was when he heard the rough laughter of the goblins coming into the central plaza. On the fourth day north, their company captured a spy. An Alsurian soldier caught on the wrong side of the river was discovered sneaking around the encampment, apparently trying to gather information. He was quickly put under a light guard in one of the supply tents. Fendal broke the news over the mess that evening. Togoth noted that if the spy was in the supply tent, then he had better accommodation than they had. For effect, he wrung out his blanket and slapped it against a tree. The rain had finally slackened, but it left behind a thin, wispy mist that covered the land and seeped into every item of clothing the soldiers had. In the morning, they would be on the march. Fendal figured that they would reach the fort ahead of the Alsurians. The spy would be shipped back to Ged, pumped for information, and then eventually turned over to the church. By that time, the war would be over. Joda thought the spy was getting the better end of the deal in this war, but he said nothing. That evening, after the others had bedded down, he slipped out of the encampment and headed for the supply tent. The Alsurian must have not been an important spy, for they left a young boy to guard him. The youth was more slender than Joda and had to be at least four years his junior. He looked like a child playing soldier to his oversized greaves and tunic, clutching onto a pipe that towered over him. Yet there was something in his manner, something that in the way that drew himself up as Joda approached, that said this one, despite his age, had seen more fighting than Joda, Fendal, and Togoth combined. I like to see the prisoner, said Joda, returning the youth's salute. Do you have permission? said the youth. His voice was still childlike, not even cracking with the first hint of maturity, but was filled with iron. No, but I could get it if I need be, said Joda. Half a lie was better than none, he reasoned. Still, it did not feel comfortable lying to a child. I'm not supposed to let the prisoner speak with anyone unobserved, said the youth. Joda cocked an ear at the boy's thick accent and said, Northerner? The young boy almost blushed, but nodded. Joda said, I'm from Giva province. The younger boy allowed himself a small smile. I'm from Thorn. I've heard of Giva. Then you know that men of Giva are honorable and honest, Joda paused for a moment. For the most part, at least. I need to ask the prisoner a question or two. I'm not supposed to let the prisoner speak with anyone unobserved, repeated the child, 
Then come and observe, said Joda. The boy hesitated for a moment, then nodded. All right. This way. The makeshift holdings area was a clear spot in the tent. Cask and bags had been pushed aside, and a heavy wooden spike had been driven into the corner of the cleared area. A short chain, no more than eight links, had been fastened to the spike, with the other end attached to the prisoner's manacles, so that he was forced to stand, hunched over, squat, or lie down. The prisoner was lying down, and Joda could see why they felt comfortable leaving a boy to guard him. The spy was emaciated to start with, and badly beaten during his capture. His face was a mess of bruises, and one eye was totally shut from the swelling. Blood crusted on the sides of the prisoner's mouth, and his once white tunic was dirty and bloody. To Joda, it looked as if the prisoner had not arrived in camp to steal information, but more likely to steal bread. The prisoner looked up with his one good eye and croaked, What now? Just a question or two, said Joda. You're from Alsur? The prisoner gave a chortle that threatened to become a blood-racking cough. At length, he said, Sure. Why not? You're from Alsur? repeated Joda. Yeah, said the prisoner through swollen lips. What about it? I need to know about a man named Vasca, said Joda. Woulda, said the prisoner in a throaty whisper. No, Vasca, said Joda. No, I need some water, said the prisoner. In the barrel, over there. Joda looked at the young guard and raised his eyebrow in a question. The boy nodded and went to the barrel, pulling out a broad bowl ladle. He took it to the prisoner and tipped it slightly. The prisoner cradled the bowl of the ladle in his manacled hands and drank deeply. Vasca, prompted Joda again. The prisoner coughed and it was a wet, throaty cough. Never heard of him, he said. He smacked his lips, moistened them with his tongue. Hold on. This Vasca was a sorcerer. A spellcaster. Yes, said Joda. The young guard had replaced the ladle in the water bucket and was now looking intently at Joda. Church has him, said the prisoner. Yeah, that's what I heard the name. Supposedly, he was caught performing sorcery, raising spirits, sacrificing farm animals, that sort of thing. But instead of killing him, they got him locked up in Alsur. Inquisition business. Is he still there? asked Joda, aware of the anticipation in his voice. Don't know, said the prisoner, looking up with one good eye. You have to ask the churchman about that. Joda thought about it in a moment, then turned away. Hey, said the prisoner, I told you what you wanted. You gotta tell me one. What do you want to know? asked Joda. I heard a rumor, said the prisoner. You get had to black wizards working for you. You raise a nasty spirit of your own, an eater of the dead. Is that true? No, replied Joda calmly. We have three of them, all lusting for Alsurian blood. Before the prisoner could react to the statement, Joda turned and walked out of the tent. A young voice called from behind. The boy guard came up, his brow a single dark line over his eyes. Who is this Vasca? Joda did not want to lie to the boy, but didn't want the youngster to have unanswered questions. Questions that he might seek answers to elsewhere. He's a wizard, Joda said simply. I heard. What is he to you? Said the boy, and the iron was back in his voice. Joda took a deep breath and plunged fully into the untruth. I lost my family thanks to Vasca. I have my own reason to reach Alsur, you see. I have a personal reason to find this wizard. The boy looked up at the ground and spat. It's such a damn waste, he said. Wizards? said Joda. Fighting, 
said the lad. I mean fighting between the cities. They're all human, all real people with lives. Meanwhile, the goblin raids were getting worse and worse. Joda nodded. You think with all the people coming south, the church and the city-states would realize where the true threat lies? The boy snorted. I hope I live to see that day. I hope we both live to see that day, said Joda. The boy smiled and held out a hand. Tividar, he said. Joda took the small, strong hand and gave his assumed name and his unit and asked the lad to keep the matter of the inquiry quiet. Then, Joda left Tividar, the child guard behind, and headed back to his unit's encampment. The goblins entered the center square, singing lustily. One of their numbers shouted for the orders to pipe down, or he would do some piping himself on their flat heads. You heard that? said the one shouting for quiet. His voice carried even over the thundering roar of the fountain. You hear what? said one of the others. You heard somebody shout, said the first one. Yeah, you, came another rough voice. There's nobody here. Softskins left this place years ago. But they left their stuff, came another voice. This one's snuffling a nasal. I never knew they'd leave their stuff. That's bad, said the first voice. That means they're coming back soon. We'll be ready for them, shouted another, which kicked off another round of shouts, songs, and rude threats. Beneath the overhanging lip of the fountain, Joda clung to the inside wall of the basin. The tugged water was higher than his chin, and he had to tip his head back in order to breathe. Muck seemed to crawl over his legs and ankles, and the ice-cold water tingled against his flesh. He was already losing the sensation in his toes, and concerned what might be in the water, that was for the best. The one whose voice Joda heard first, the apparent leader, was speaking again. Yeah, yeah, he bellowed. We'll be ready for them, just like the last time. And there were more cheers. Beneath the rim, Joda hoped that they would move on, camp in some other part of the city, or just move away from here. The cold, clammy feeling was creeping up his leg as the water stole the warmth from him. His wounded leg, which had earlier seemed to be on fire, now felt as if it had daggers made of ice jammed into the wound. The cold reached his loins and stomach. He wondered if he was turning blue. He tried to shift slightly from his crouch, but was rewarded with a painful set of needles along both legs. He shifted again, then halted entirely, stopping himself from even breathing. There was a shadow on the water in front of him. Something was directly above him, sitting on the rim itself. The shadow wavered in the churning waters of the fountain, but he was sure that it had mule-shaped ears on either side of its pointed head and a heavy underslung jaw. What do you want to do? came a voice from nearby. Thirsty, said the shadow about Joda. I want a drink. And with that, the goblin muzzle leaned down directly over Joda's hiding place to sip from the fountain. Joda took a deep breath and slid beneath the greenish water, hoping he could hold his breath until the goblin was done. The united forces of Ged reached the fort first and dispersed a token garrison led by the Alsurians, a garrison that had been unaware of the state of war between the two city-states until the first cavalry units thundered across the shallow crossing, screaming and putting those who fled before them to the sword. The bulk of the army crossed without incident, and it camped on the far side in Alsurian territory. Scouts reported the main body of Alsur's forces was two days away. Their choices were to dig in on the soft earth surrounding the ford, or to try to seek out the Alsurians in the surrounding hills. Joda's feet felt as if they were thick as leather boots, and his leg felt like lead. So naturally, the decision was to meet the Alsurians in the hill 
and they marched again, into the fog-shrouded hills. On the morning of the second day, an outrider brought news out of the fog. The Australians were just south, in the next valley over. They were still marching in formation. They had no outriders of their own, and as such were unaware that the Ged forces had beaten them to the ford. They were vulnerable to an ambush. The Ged forces, aided by a thick blanket of morning fog, would top the low line of hills that framed the Australian line of march. The commanders deployed their heavy cavalry to the left flank to ride down on the enemy's rear echelon, while the rest of the Ged army engaged the Australians along the length of the line of march. At least, that was Fendal's idea of what was happening. And for once, Togoth had no response. Joda knew little of the full plans of the Ged commanders. All he saw was a blanket of white on all sides through which moved the shadowy forms of other Ged foot soldiers. They were moving shoulder to shoulder up the hill. Togoth was on one side, Fendal on the other. Beyond them were other members of the unit, becoming misty and indistinct in the fog, grayer and grayer, until they vanished entirely in a field of white. They ampled in a rough line to the top of a hillock, some of the ragged forms reaching the crest before others. Just as Joda reached the top, there was a shout from his right and the distinct blast of a trumpet. Then, everyone on his right and left was shouting and running down the opposite side of the hill, charging full tilt into the thicker fog beyond that hid the Alsurians. For most of the descent, there was nothing, only other Ged soldiers running alongside Joda through the fog. Then, shapes loomed up ahead of them. The shapes clarified into desperate Alsurian foot soldiers trying to pull themselves into formations capable of receiving the Ged charge. Pikemen still tried to form protective squares as the first attackers were already among them. Then, there was just pandemonium on all sides as the armies met. Joda had his sword out in front of him, and he ran with the rest. He paused only briefly whenever a shape rose in front of him. If it wore the black and green of Ged, it was a friend. He hoped the other fog shape would recognize they were on the same side. If it wore any other colors, Joda waved his sword in front of him, hoping to force any opponent back or at least convince his foe to go attack someone else. Shadows and silhouettes dance all around. Ahead of him, the mist cleared enough to show a figure wearing enemy colors, purple and white. The enemy raised its blade over its head and charged forward. Joda swung his blade around in a long, lazy arc. Joda's blade struck something hard, and when he pulled it back, it was coated with blood. The figure had charged past him and was swallowed again by the fog. The idea that it was someone else's blood on the blade trickled dully into his brain as another shape, also not wearing black and green, lunged into view, brandishing a spear. Joda ducked under the thrust point of the spear and came up hard with the sword, his arm tense under the jolt as his blade bit deep into the attacker and then the spear wielder was gone as well. About this time, Joda stopped thinking, at least in terms of who was doing what to whom. He was concentrating on only hitting that which was not black and green and avoiding being hit himself. A rain of javelins came from somewhere and fell among his company, bringing down several of his fellow troops. One struck dully in the soft ground next to his left foot. Joda stared at it for a long moment, then was caught up as another opponent lunged at him. It took a few moments for Joda to realize that he was no longer fighting other humans. Rather, these were more slender, whitish creatures with elongated faces and scaled armor shaped like oak leaves. Elves. They were fighting elves, and he remembered Fendal's story about the hiring of mercenaries from the Shattered Isles. Elven mercenaries who delighted in battling against the humans who broke their civilization centuries before. Joda saw Fendal, briefly, on the ground, the roadmaker's head lying there, a wide smile across his face, his body nowhere to be seen. Something soft and snake-like uncoiled in the pit of Joda's belly, and for the first time, 
he smelled the scent of human blood on the wet, fog-bound grass. There was another opponent, and another, and Jota fought like an automaton, warding off the worst of the blows. Something, a dagger or a short, thin blade, rattled across his lamellar armor, but there was no sign of his assailant. There were shouts of victory and death all around him, but he had no idea which side they belonged to. There were shouts to his left, and Jota assumed that was the get-heavy cavalry finally smashing its way up the length of the enemy line. A horseman in get armor almost rode him down, and Jota fell backward over a pile of bodies, human and elven. When he arose, his armor was coated in slime and mud. More shouts, and these sounded like shouts of victory. There were more people in the fog wearing armor like his, so he assumed they had won. The slender elves and the humans, in bloody white and muddy purple, were in full fight now, seating them the battlefield. That was when the goblins attacked. Again, Jota was not aware of what had happened at first, only that the shouts of triumph had died and were replaced by panic screams. There were drums in the distance, great kettle drums not used by human armies. The elves and men of Alsur were no longer fleeing them, but were now running toward them and past them. Out of the misty fog behind the fleeting forces appeared a new set of shadows, bunched together so thick that they seemed to be a single creature, spreading from the right edge of Jota's vision to the left. Goblins appeared out of the mist, dressed in ragged armor, looted from raids on other human encampments or abandoned battlefields. Most were the green-skinned beasts that Bosca had fought, but among them, there were ones whose flesh was bone white. These creatures fought like madmen with swords, clenched tightly in each hand, not caring for their own injuries. Some of the goblins were sinewy and thin, like parodies of the elves that they brought down with stone-headed clubs. Behind the goblin line, larger, giant-sized shapes that Jota could not completely identify, loomed through the fog. The goblins crashed into the human forces and threw them back, like an ocean wave striking a sandcastle. Jota felt as if he was carried physically backward, as opposed to fleeing of his own volition. He slashed at a few of the goblins, and they disappeared, to be replaced by others. A riderless horse, bearing the livery of a Ged commander, thundered through the goblin lines, its flesh stripped with numerous cuts, its eyes wide with fear. The two warring human armies rallied and unified against the goblins, forming knots of humanity as the goblin tide surged forward. Jota found himself on a low hillock, flanked by an elf on one side and Elsurian on the other. Half the elf's face was slick with blood, and part of his ear was missing. The boy guard Tividar would be so pleased, thought Jota bitterly. Everyone was united to fight the goblins. Then there was a fiery explosion, not too far to their left, a reddish hue that spread out through the fog bearing light and screams. Jota thought at once of magic and wondered if the goblins had their own spellcasters. There was little time for such thought, for a wave of goblins was upon them again. They were driven into the hillock, and the elf disappeared beneath the swords of the goblins. Something bit into his thigh, and Jota lashed out automatically, cleaving something that screamed in an inhuman tongue, and then was silent. They pulled back slightly, up the side of the valley. Then they retreated. Then they were routed, casting aside their weapons and their armor, in the dim hope of outdistancing the goblins. Jota remembered that the hillside seemed smaller on the way down. Now it seemed like a cliff, covering with wet, greasy grass that denied any proper flight and threatened to spill Jota and the others back into the laps of the goblins behind them. There were others with Jota, blind eye in panic, and uncaring as to what lay ahead of them, as long as it was not what lay behind them. The ground in front of them leveled out, then descended again. He half ran, half tumbled down the slope, the screams and shouts of the goblins and men and the elves dying behind him. Still, he ran with the others up another hill 
and down again, until at last, exhaustion and the blood leaking from his legs stopped him, and he collapsed in the wet grass. The world spun around him, and then closed around him, as he felt unconscious. Jota did not know how long he slept, only that he had been unconscious a long time. His leg felt as if it was on fire, and the world around him was still fog-bound, still wrapped in cotton. There was no noise, and Jota had no idea where he was. He guessed, from the general brightness of the sky, which way was south, and began limping north and slightly west, hoping to reach the ford and find other members of his unit, or even other humans or elves. He met no other survivors in his flight, not even bodies left from the assault. The going was slow and eternal, and he felt as if he had been abandoned in a small universe of his own, a universe bound only by his fog-limited vision, bound by that and by the growing pain in his leg. He came upon the city later that day. The lead goblin smacked his companion, almost knocking him into the fountain's pool. What are you, stupid? He snarled. The other goblin sat back. What do you mean, stupid? You ain't gotta drink that, said the lead goblin. Why not? It's just water, said the goblin. You ain't gonna drink that. It's dirty water, said the lead goblin. So? So look at all the mud on plants and stuff. It's polluted. So? So look at the pigeons, said the lead goblin, sounding exacerbated. What about the pigeons? said the other one. So the pigeons do what pigeons do in the water, said the leader. You want to drink that? There was a long moment of silence. Then the goblin said, I guess not. You are so stupid sometimes, said the lead goblin. There were shouts from across the plaza. The lead goblin bellowed, What do you see? Another throaty bellow came back. Something's moving down here. What is it? Don't know, came the answer. Come look. Let's move it, said the lead goblin. But I'm thirsty, said the other goblin. We can find a stream later, said the leader. Let's go. The two padded away, taking the other goblins with them. The fountain remained unguarded for a moment, the only sound being the thunder of the water from the lion's mouth. Then, Joda broke the surface, spinning and gagging. He had remained underwater until his lungs had nearly burst and still inhaled a fair amount of the particulate-laden waters. Now he sputtered and coughed, aware that any goblin within ten yards of him would be able to kill him like a kitten. Joda inhaled again, deeply, and coughed again, but there were no goblins around to hear. He wiped the muck and algae from his face and looked around. He was alone again in the central plaza. Slowly, he pulled himself out of the ice-cold water. He would have to find shelter and then escape the city. No, escape the city center first, then make a fire, dry himself off. His magic was good for that at least. He felt chilled to the bone as he staggered out of the square, heading the direction that the goblins had originally come from. Only later, once he had built a fire in one of the outlying buildings and dried off, did he realize that his leg was no longer hurt and the wound had closed up entirely. 